Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Crossroads Church Podcast. We are from CrossroadsColorado.com, and we are located in Loveland, Colorado, just about an hour north of Denver, and it's so good to be with you. And today, Ryan is concluding our series, Love You. And so if you could look at the graphic of this series, it looks like Love University, L-U-V with a U. And speaking of that, go to CrossroadsColorado.com slash gather and you will see our resources page. Now, I went ahead and linked this in your show notes also, but that's where you're going to access all kinds of things like our connect card where you could let us know that you are here, drop your information down if you'd like to connect with somebody. It doesn't matter if you live near or far. We love to know who's here and who is connecting with us. And you can be part of our network and part of our community. You will also find the notes to the message. You can look up PDF notes. You can look up notes that you want to fill in yourself. Now, keep in mind, those show notes change each week on the link. You'll also find a link of ways to give. As you're part of this growing community, it's fun to get behind the vision. And our Adventure is Worth It initiative. So you may want to access the links to give and participate there. So here is Pastor Ryan in week four of Love You. Is your love maturing or mutating? Ooh, this is good. Here he is. everybody doing? Good to see you. Isn't she something special? Tell you what, we're excited. We're excited. And I didn't pay her to say that about me. I did not. That just came from her heart. That's good. Hey, uh, if you have your talk notes out, if you have your pen, if you're tuning in online, welcome. My name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads. Grab that pen for me, even if you're not going to take, you know, fill in the blanks. I totally get that. Grab, grab your pen though for just a second. Write this, this number down, 207. Go and write that down, 207 608 1106 That's my cell phone number. If you are a guest here today, a regular attender, and we have never had the privilege of meeting, and I haven't got to talk with you, and, and uh, I would love to do that. It would be my honor. And so just send me a text message, and we'll get something set up. If you're a guest especially today, and you have any questions about our church, I just want to be available to you. So you can do that. If you're tuning in online, you're not able to be here in the room, do me a favor. Just text a selfie of you and your family, uh, wherever you are. Just say hello. I would love to see you as well, even though you might not be in the building. So it'd be great to get to connect with some of you. Uh, And I I love that. I get to do that about every week. So it's going to be a lot of fun. So please do that. Take advantage of it. It would be a lot of fun. And uh, I am a cheap date. I promise. I promise. I I generally don't get anything more than, you know, chicken and waffles. um, And, uh, you know, so it'll be super cheap for you. Don't worry about it. No, coffee will be on me or tea or whatever it is that you do. Hey, want to jump in today? We're in week four of our series, Love University, Love You. How many of you have somebody in your life that loves you? 
I, I just involved everybody in the room, hopefully. Hopefully, I just, just got you awake a little bit. So we've been exploring this really uh, powerful piece of literature from a letter that Paul wrote to a group of, of people called the Corinthians in the Bible. It's a little letter we have in the New Testament. So we're just kind of marching through. We're actually going to kind of wrap up all of the verses today, and then we've got a couple of weeks of just kind of application. Next week, Ricky's going to be here, and he's looking forward to it. He's going to be talking about how do we love people from our own brokenness? How do we do that? Uh, what does that look like? And he's going to share a bit of his story. It's going to be wonderful. How many of you have ever met a person that you would think of as immature? Immature. Uh, stop. Let, let's not point to people in the room, okay? Uh, especially me. Uh, I'm fragile. I feel that that was a bit much to just point right at me in that moment. I mean, come on, people. Not cool. Not cool. What does that look like in your mind when you think of like, okay, immaturity? What is that? Well, generally, when we think of immaturity, we say, well, that's when a person, you know, behaves or makes decisions or acts in, in, in a way with their responsibilities that doesn't meet our expectations, right? We would look at a person based upon their experience or their age or whatever it might be, and we have certain expectations of them. And when they don't meet those expectations, we say, well, they're immature, right? Or maybe they get so frustrating to us, we would think in our minds or maybe even say it to like somebody, they just need to grow up. They just, you've had that experience, right? Maybe you're that experience, right? <laughs> Maybe somebody said to you, you just need to grow up. I know that's happened to me a few times in my life, right? Now, if it was fascinating. Immaturity in all of us, right, generally manifests in, in our responsibilities, right? So it manifests in our lives as what people would call irresponsibility, or it manifests as selfishness, right? Only thinking of ourselves. It manifests as a lack of discernment or what we call adolescence, some of you will get that on the way home, right? Uh, like this ability to not discern, like, is this a wise thing to do, right? How many parents in the room are caregivers? You've got kiddos around the house that you're kind of responsible for. How many of you have ever had that moment in your life where they do something so out of the ordinary, it shocks you because it's actually more mature than you think? <laughs> you ever had that? It's coming one of these days. One of these days, your kids are going to shock you. One of these days, your kids are going to do something on their own without being told, without expectation of reward, without a handout, whatever it might be, and you're almost going to be like blown away. They're going to have to come and pick you up off of the floor, right? And that's how powerful maturity is, right? It can take your breath away. And when you think about your own life and like the kids that you maybe help give care to, or maybe you are a parent, right? We're, we're really happy when we see them and we look and go, hey, my kids are capable of maturing. They have all the tools necessary. They're, 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 they're progressing along. And all of a sudden, if we think that they're capable of it, but they don't, then we're like, ooh, danger is around the corner. Something's going to happen here. Like we just know the importance of maturing and we want them to mature. We maybe don't think about it, but we want ourselves, we want our kids to mature in kind of two key areas in life. We want to mature continually all throughout life in the way we think and the way we love. That's what I would encourage. There's something inside of us that when we meet a, a person who's mature in the way they think, we have a tendency to, we gravitate to them. We go, this is a wise person, right? A wise person isn't necessarily someone who knows everything, right? A wise person, I think, is someone who is constantly maturing in their thinking, and likewise, we would say a person is loving that is constantly maturing in their love. Because here's what's fascinating. If love doesn't mature, it, it mutates, right? And it becomes toxic to relationships. 
And that's really what I think what we're dealing with today is the importance of a love that matures because without love maturing, it will eventually become toxic and harm a relationship. It's kind of like food, right? Do you know that there are some foods that are actually toxic to your system if they don't mature appropriately, right? If we'll use the word mature, for you got to give them something. They have to kind of evolve a little bit. Things you might not know of, right? Uh, elderberries. Anybody have elderberries in their life? Elderberries are actually very toxic to your system if they don't ripen all the way, right? If you, if you eat them too soon. But here's what's fascinating. Kidney beans. How many kidney bean lovers in the house? Any kidney bean lovers? Yeah, I know Jess Perez. She knows her kidney beans. Mama Perez burritos, all right? I'm paying attention, right? She gets them from a special place. But kidney beans are actually very, very toxic to your system if they're not matured through boiling, right? If you don't, like four or five of them can really do some damage to your system, uh, right? They need to be matured through boiling, how many like cashews? Anybody cashew fans? Yeah, big old thing, cashews. Cashews, raw cashews, very toxic. Do you know cashews have the exact same toxin in them as poison ivy? Yeah, some of you are like, I am never having a cashew again in my life, right? But when you buy raw cashews, they're not actually raw. They've been kind of processed. They go through a process of steaming. They steam the cashews, and that kills that toxin. But if they don't go through the maturing, through the steaming, there's a problem. And in the same way, love is, is just like that, I think. If you think in your life, the stories that you've heard of people who've been in toxic relationships, they never, ever start off toxic, right? They never start, like in a sense, they always, even if it's for a day or a week or a month, they start off with such promise and hope and that experience of love and just the feeling of emotion and passion and being cared for. But if love doesn't mature in a relationship, it will become, it will mutate into something else. So love can mutate into control. Right? Love can mutate into anger right? if it doesn't mature alongside of a relationship. Love can mutate into pride if we're not careful. And so 1 Corinthians actually offers us a lot of wisdom around this idea of why love does mature if it's genuine, authentic, Christ-like love, and why that's important. So in 1 Corinthians 13, like just a quick review, okay? 1 Corinthians 13, we got to remember the whole point of this passage of Scripture, the Apostle Paul is combating really love that's mutated into pride, I think, right? And so the Corinthian church, remember, they're like looking at all these gifts and they think this is the manifestation of love. When people get up in front and they teach, when people give an insightful word, when people would speak in other languages, when people would perform miracles and healings, all kinds of great stuff, they would say, that's awesome. But that had mutated love and turned it into a place of pride and dissension, all kinds of problems. And so the whole background of 1 Corinthians 13 is what you think of as love is not love. And that's what he's showing. And so we're going to continue to march through. And last week, Pastor Dennis, if you weren't able to be here or you haven't listened to that message yet, you definitely have to listen to it. It's fantastic. Talked about a couple of verses. And he looked at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8 and 9, which says, love never fails. Love never fails. And remember, what love never fails is actually saying is that love persists. Love persists. Don't think of love never failing as in like it never lets us down or it's always going to give us what we want, right? Think of love never failing as it always finishes. 
It continues on. I think of uh, the first that I, I started running a while ago, a long time ago, and, and, and I never understood people that ran. I still don't. I don't like it, but I have to, I do it for some measure of exercise, but I've run a couple of marathons. And uh, the first marathon, the goal was to just not stop running, make it all the way through. And I did it, and I hit my time goal. That was wonderful. The second marathon I did, I had an injury in training on my knee, and I hadn't run over about 12 miles going into the marathon. Not a wise decision. Right? Stupidity won over that one. I was like, I paid 40 bucks to be in this thing. I'm not wasting it. <laughs> and uh, and, I, and I, so I'm, I'm running this, and running is a very, very generous phrase for what I do in a marathon. Okay, let's just be really honest. So I'm out there, and at about mile 17, the knee gives, like, just starts to give way. And it, it was a very long finish, right? Mile 18, 19, it was, it was very, very long. And uh, I can remember coming around the corner, and I was coming on the finish line was ahead, and there was a water station, and <laughs> there's nobody around me. And I just looked at the woman, and I was like, am I still in first place? <laughs> she had, like, no idea what to do at that moment. I was like, I'm just messing with you. I'm just kidding. Don't worry about it. Right? But I finished, right? I didn't fail because I, fit. I just kept going. I think that's the idea of when we say love never fails. It's that love persists. It keeps going on. It doesn't ever end. It moves forward. It is persistent. And so Paul starts to give reasons why love itself is persistent and what isn't persistent, what will fail, what will end. He says in verse 9, he says, if there are prophecies, they'll be brought to nothing. If there are tongues, they will cease. Right? Now, if you're new to Bible study, that's not some weird thing about your tongue. That was a phrase used for like, the idea of people speaking in faith, languages that they didn't know, that oftentimes were thought of as like angelic, like the, the language of angels. He says, that's going to cease. If somebody has all this knowledge, it's going to cease. It's going to be brought to nothing. It's not like love. He's saying, these aren't like love. And what Paul's going after again is that the gifts these, these manifestations of love that, that the Corinthians thought were so amazing that they honored the most... Paul is saying they're temporary. They're just temporary. And he says they're temporary because right now we need them because we know partially. He says we know partially, so we prophesy partially. We need those words because we don't fully understand what's happening around us. We don't fully understand God. We, 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 we know that. And he says, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. That's a key phrase, when the perfect comes. So Paul's saying in this sentence, he's like, listen, these gifts that you think are so wonderful or so powerful, eventually not only are they gonna just like not exist, but they're, they're not going to be necessary. There's going to come a point in time, what Paul refers to as the perfect, where we're not going to need to prophesy. We're not going to need to have knowledge. We're not going to need, need to have these special gifts of miracles, all this stuff. And that's the perfect. Now, what in the world does Paul mean by the perfect? How many of you enjoy a little theology? Raise your hand up nice and this, this next section is going to be a little long for most of you then. Uh, looks like. We're gonna... <laughs> Love it. There was literally like four people that raised their hand. If you're at home, you've like hit the pause button. You've like, snack time, you know, like intermission. <laughs> Here we go. No, let's just talk for a second, right? What did Paul mean about the perfect? We got to jump in because if we don't understand what Paul under means here, we can misunderstand all of it, all right? And we can go down a, a rail that is not good, okay? So for Paul, when Paul says the perfect, He's talking about his belief in what we'll call, or what he would have called, the general resurrection of the dead, okay? So in Paul's day, in Judaism, right? Because remember, Paul is a Jew. Like, there's no such thing as Christianity, okay? There's just different types of, uh, and sects of Judaism. There's Pharisees and Sadducees, and eventually there were 
Christianese. There were Jesusians, right? That's what it was. Like, we think of it as like this separate religion, but it wasn't. And so inside of Judaism, there was this hot debate that had been raging over about 300 years. And, and you think of the history of Judaism. It's not a long time for Paul of like, is there a resurrection of the dead, right? And the idea of the resurrection of the dead for Paul was this was God's great cleanup of the world. This was when God would clean up the world and the injustice. Remember, faith and life and politics is all intertwined for Paul and especially for Jesus, right? This is all about oppression. This is about injustice. This is God's great cleanup of the world. So Paul believes that there will be a general resurrection. He was a Pharisee, okay? So he believed in the general resurrection and he saw that this was what was the perfect. So he's saying, listen, when the perfect comes, this general resurrection we're not going to need prophecy. We're not going to need these things. So what did Paul believe about this general resurrection? First of all, very important, Paul believed that Jesus was what he called the first fruits of the general resurrection. He believed that Jesus was kind of this inauguration of it. A little bit later on in his letter to the Corinthians, what we now call 1 Corinthians 15, a few chapters later. By the way, Paul did not write in chapter and verse. We should know that if you're kind of new to Bible study. We've added those so we can find it easily. But a little later on in his letter, he says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. So that's his metaphor for death, because for Paul, death is not the end. There will be a general resurrection of the dead. And he says, Christ is the first fruits of that. Since death came through a human being, right? The resurrection of the dead comes also through a human being. And he, he explains that. He says, for just as in Adam all die, like his understanding of the narrative of Adam and Eve, like death comes into the world through human choice, through Adam's decision, so too in Christ, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, shall all be brought to life. Shall all be brought to life. But each one in proper order. And then he goes into how he thinks it's going to work out. He says, oh, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming... Then those who belong to Christ, right? Those who come to life. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom of his God and Father, when he has destroyed every sovereignty and every authority and every power. Please do not say that Paul was not political. <laughs> right? That's a pamphlet right there. You, I dare you to try and write a pamphlet like that about the fall of the empire of America when Jesus comes back and see what happens to you. Right? It will not be pretty. It won't be pretty, right? But that's what Paul's doing. Paul is fighting empire, just like Jesus was. Now, that's not the only part of the gospel. That's not the only, but that is key because empire imperialism was the oppression of the day. It was what was keeping poor people poor and away from all that God had for all of humanity, okay? So, he, so for Paul, he says, this is what's gonna happen. And he says, for Jesus must reign until, all his put, until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And, this, and immediately following this is the beautiful passage and the final enemy is death. Final enemy is death. And I just, can I just look, give a little aside here, a little tiny one? Death is the enemy of God. Death is the enemy of love. Death is never of God. I just think it's important for us to recognize that. I think that death is redeemed by God. I think that, death is, I think that God is present when we walk through death. But I think that scripture and I think that the idea of life and reality teaches us that death is the greatest enemy of love. And that I believe deeply what Paul's driving home here, that there will come a time where that enemy itself. So I don't believe when it comes to things like death and grief, that God needed another angel. I don't believe that God took your loved one to heaven. 
I think that those can bring comfort to people sometimes, but death, we should never, ever, ever mistake that death is the enemy of love and that Jesus came to conquer not only spiritual death, but also physical death, right? So for Paul, this idea of the general resurrection, it isn't happening right now. It doesn't happen. It's going to happen a different time. Think of it like the opening of the Olympics, right? The opening ceremony. The opening ceremony of the Olympics says the Olympic Games have begun, but nobody has played a game yet, (laughs) right? There's no competition. There's no nothing. It's the first fruit of the Olympics. It gives you the signal that the games are going to start at some point in time. So Paul doesn't believe we're in the general resurrection, but he believes that Christ is kind of this initiating, this inaugurating event. So second thing that Paul believed about the general resurrection that's really important for us is that he thought that the general resurrection was going to happen in his lifetime. Make no mistake about it. Paul thought that that moment, his understanding of Jesus' return, was going to happen in a moment's time, and everything was going to be made right, and it would be in his lifetime. Listen to what he says a few verses later in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. Okay? Now, Paul is, I just want to say this, and I I don't want to upset anybody, but I got a feeling I might. Listen, Paul is recognizing that what he's getting ready to talk about is a mystery. (laughs) He's not saying, let me explain it and tell you exactly how it's going to work, and I'm 100% right. Like, if we were writing today, he would say, let me talk to you about this mystery and what I think is going to happen and what I'm living for and what, what I perceive is going on in the world. That's what Paul's doing here. So he says, this is what he says. We will not all fall asleep. He's not writing to you, okay? He's not writing to me. Paul's writing to the Corinthians. And he's telling the Corinthians, not all of you, not all of us are going to fall asleep, but we'll all be transformed. We'll all be changed when? In an instant, in the blink of an eye at the last trumpet. Great, That's what's going to happen. Not all of us are going to fall asleep. Paul has no concept that he's writing a letter that will become sacred scripture. He does not think, well, I'm writing to Ryan, who's going to be pastoring Crossroads Church, following the tremendously beautiful, wonderful, very well-dressed founding pastor John Smith. (laughs) And I just got to write this letter for him to make sure that he knows it. That's not even in Paul's thought. Paul's just like, this is what's going to happen. Don't screw up your life. That's why he talks about not getting married or getting married or staying married, because he thinks it's all coming to an end. And he says, it's going to happen. And so Paul, he says, like, this is going to happen very soon. Well, guess what? I mean, hold on to something. Paul was wrong. Isn't that good news? You know why that's good news for you and me? Because that means that we can be wrong about God and be okay. We put so much pressure on you got to believe the right thing. You got to know the right stuff for us. Right? This is the apostle Paul. He was flat wrong. They all died. Did you know that there is not a Corinthian that Paul wrote to still alive? It's just didn't happen. I mean, it, they, they, they're not around. Paul's not around. It didn't happen that way. And so guess what? Most of, most of Christians today, most of Christendom, believe it or not, they believe very differently than Paul about this idea of the resurrection. Right? Many of us don't believe that it's this instantaneous moment return. Many of us recognize why Paul would believe that. What about his tradition will lead him to it? But many Christians say, no, the, the general resurrection isn't something that we're waiting on. It's something that is happening right now. 
that it's happening right now, and we see it in Jesus' teaching. We see it in even some of Paul's writings and other letters. We see this happening. The general resurrection is underway, and we'll, we are called to participate in it right now while we're still alive. That's the beauty of the image of baptism, death, and resurrection into new life, right? And we participate in the general resurrection through love. We live in what was oftentimes referred to as the now but not yet kingdom of God, not fully kingdom of God. And so that's what Paul is imagining when he says the perfect. Paul is saying the perfect is coming. It's coming very soon. This is what it's going to be like. So within that framework, Paul now is going to give an explanation as to why it's okay and why they should recognize that these other gifts are secondary that these other gifts are not nearly as powerful as love, that these other gifts are going to fade away. And he uses the language of maturity. He says, he gives this example. He says, when I was a child, this is back in 1 Corinthians 13 now, verse 10, he says, when I was a child, I used to talk as a child. I used to think as a child. I used to reason as a child. But when I became a man, I put aside childish things, right? I love this. Paul is not saying that childish things are not necessary. Paul's not saying children shouldn't think like children or reason like children. It just is what it is. It's perfectly appropriate. It's right for their time. It's right for their season. Guess what? Kids are supposed to talk in church, right? Kids are supposed to look at their iPads in church. They're supposed to look at their iPhones in church. That's just what you do as a kid. Mom and dad, put down the Instagram for 45 minutes. Come on, people, right? That's what Paul's saying. Like, I would act like a child. Childish things are appropriate for children, right? And we recognize problem when we hang on to childish things as adults, right? Who are capable of maturing, who have the resources, right? Childish things aren't bad. Childish things aren't unnecessary. They're just temporary. And that's what Paul's driving home. Like these things, prophecy, all the stuff that we would look at, and even to this day, let's be honest, to this day, that we value so high in the American church, Right? All those gifts that put somebody on a platform, that give them a stage, that make them so wonderful because they're insightful, they have knowledge, they perform, whatever it might be, Paul's saying, guess what? Those are immature realities because as reality matures, what's going to continue maturing, what's going to stay forever is love. And Paul's saying, guess what? And I think if we recognize it, childish things in our lives, what is the foundation for like, childish things, right? It's ignorant bliss and limited perspective, <laughs> Right? Like that's the basis for childlike behavior, ignorant bliss and limited perspective. I love it, right? Kids don't have a clue how food gets on the table. It just magically shows up, right? How did, how did dinner happen tonight? <laughs> right? I don't know about you, but like in our house, one of the most, <laughs> one of the like most dangerous phrases you could ever say to an adult as a child was, when is dinner? <laughs> or what's for dinner? <laughs> Those two questions, for whatever reason in our house, we're always like, danger, Will Robinson, danger, <laughs> right? Kids don't have an understanding. We want our kids not to, right? We want them to dream about doing whatever they want to in their life. Forget about it. It's going to cost, you know, 12 years of school and $400,000 in education. Like, we want them to have ignorant bliss about that. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a surgeon. That's awesome, <laughs> right? I mean... <laughs> And what Paul is saying is a lot of these gifts are just based upon some bliss. It's based upon limited perspective, just like childish things are. And he goes on and he says, at present we see indistinctly. 
Like, it's fuzzy, it's hazy. It's like my eyesight now at 45. I got to go to the eye doctor. Like, don't ask me to read stuff this close these days. It's indistinct. It's as in a mirror. But then, face to face, what's the then? The perfect. For Paul, it's going to happen soon. It's going to be in a moment, right? At present, I know partially. Can we just hold that right there? Paul says, at present, I know partially. Why do we continually make Paul not know partially? I'm going to let that one sink in for a second. When we come to Scripture, we actually remove Paul's own assessment of his own leadership. I know partially. I just know partially. And I'm grateful for what he knew partially. I'm grateful for what he explored. He says, I know partially, but then I'll know fully. When that happens, in that, I'll know, just as I'm fully known right now, isn't that interesting? He says, I'll know fully, but right now I'm fully known. Like God fully knows me. There's so... We could go back into big theology there about how that should just give everybody a breath. You're fully known. Like, just relax. And the then for Paul was that instant, complete reign of God that was going to clean up, take care of Rome, everything. But we know it wasn't an instant. We know that it's happening right now. That the body of Christ is living and moving and having her being in Jesus. And so he goes on and he says, but here's the deal. Faith, hope, and love remain. What does that mean, remain? For Paul, they remain in the perfect. It's not, Paul's not giving some idea of like, oh, well, these are just pie in the sky ideas. And they're so, no, he's saying, when that comes and everything is set right on this world, there still is going to be the necessity for faith, hope, and love. Isn't that wild? Because like, we have this imagination that the, the full reign kingdom of God, well, what would we need hope for? Everything's going to be perfectly one. But no, he says, you're going to have to have faith, hope, and love forever. They're going to last forever, even in the perfect. As wrong as he was about that momentary moment that was going to happen while well, in his lifetime and Rome was all that. Even, but he says, in that moment, it's still going to be necessary. And I think there's deep inspired truth in that, that there's always this need, that they have eternal value and eternal necessity. And so when we talk about love, right, and this idea of why does it remain, it's because love matures. But prophecy doesn't mature, knowledge doesn't mature, but love matures. So don't miss this. This, I think, is what Paul's driving home, I think, was important for us. Genuine love, Christ-like love, matures. The love itself, it matures as we participate in the resurrected life of Christ. Now, that's a lot there. Super churchy. You're welcome, okay? But, but let's, let's think about it in like, how do I, let's just put this in like normal people words, okay? Love matures when we participate in living for other people. When our appetites are transformed through the work of God so that we're no longer absorbed by ourselves and our needs and our wants, but we're actually living for the joy of others. We're living for the justice of others. We're living for the mercy of others. That's this life in Christ. So this love, it matures. It changes. It transforms us. It transforms our interactions with God. And, it, and it's gonna, it should be growing, which means the way I think and interact with God when I was seven years old, because I've just been around this for a long time, is different now that I'm going to be 45. I know I don't look it. Thank you, Sandy. I appreciate that. She said amen under her mask. I could tell. But I, I should, 
if my love, if, if it's genuine love, it's got to mature. And I can't look back and say, oh, all the stuff I thought about God 10 years ago or 20 years ago or five years ago or a year ago, those are bad things. They might have been very necessary, but they're not enough. That's what love does. That's how love continually moves. The way I think about you, the way I think about other people, love matures over time. So I think differently about how I should interact with people the value and the importance of people. The truth is, early on in my career, I was caught up in like what I think a lot of young leaders were. And I was caught up in the idea of people. I was caught up in the idea of church. I was caught up in the idea of attendance. I was caught up in the idea of all of these things that people from the outside would look at. But I wasn't really caught up in the individual person. Like what's going on in their life? And how do I balance those two? It's not that one's right and one's wrong. It's there has to be a balance. And I think that's love maturing. The way we think about creation, our interactions with the world itself, those change over time. And so the resurrected life, right, that's the maturing agent. Life in Christ is the maturing agent, and it keeps love from mutating to something else as people change around us. And so the next series that we're doing is called Living in Christ. Super catchy phrase. You're going to be able to invite all your friends to it. They're going to be super interested in like 15 years ago, I would have never named a series Living in Christ. Like, who's going to invite a friend to that? <laughs> but it's just, that's what we're going to explore. And it's the second part in our peacemaking series. We said believing like Jesus. Well, now what does it mean to be one who is living in Christ? This beautiful phrase of Paul's that he believed very deeply about. So that's going to launch on the 27th that weekend. And we're just going to take six weeks, seven weeks, and really dig into what does it mean to live in Christ, to have a life hidden in Christ so that love can mature in us. And so in your normal, everyday, peacemaking life, as you think about it, let me just give you some high-level ideas. I think love matures through some, just like we all mature in, through, some, through like certain things, right? So there's three ways I think that love matures. There's three ways I think that we mature as people in lots of areas of our lives, thinking as well. Experiences, right? Experiences mature us. Good experiences, new experiences, the same experience over and over again, that can mature you, right? You, have, you hit your head against the same wall enough times, you will eventually mature, right? Or you'll just have a really bad headache, right? responsibility matures us. Anybody in the room ever been given a responsibility? You knew the moment it was handed to you, you were like, I am unfit for this. <laughs> yeah, about two and a half years ago, I got voted in here. I was like, what are they thinking? No way. Right? But if you're up for it and if you're willing to do the work, boy, that will mature you. That will, channel, that will, that will mature love in you. And suffering. Like suffering is a maturing agent in our lives probably the most powerful, honestly, if we're willing to live in Christ in the midst of our suffering. So in three big areas, in your faith, like your relationship with God, your relationship spiritually with other people, like how you see other people, right? In that area, love matures. And as love matures, it, what it grows, I think, is this attachment to mystery and grace and then it kind of puts aside, just like Paul says, I put aside childish things, it puts aside certainty and judgment. So as, our, as love matures us in our faith, we become, we become more okay and more comfortable with mystery and grace because those are things that we're not in control of. And we start getting rid of the control stuff, the judgment, like I can tell everybody how to live their life. I can tell everybody what's right and wrong with them. I can tell everybody what's right and wrong with the world. I know exactly how God functions and who God is. 
and love that matures us in our faith journey and that matures with us, I just see this movement that takes place. And again, it's not that it's bad if you're in a place of certainty and judgment. It's just, I think, what God wants to do is mature us over time, right? Get us unstuck, unstuck from certainty and judgment. What about in your relationships, marriage relationships, partnerships, like adult friendships? Here's the thing. I think we get a beautiful picture of what this looks like. Mature love in relationships moves us to embrace more and more the idea of mutual submission over personal pride. We see in our, in our marriages mutual submission, like true egalitarian realities, equally made, uniquely gifted, and we embrace that and we learn to submit and serve one another over our own personal pride. And so what love does is it matures, it shifts the focus away from what I need, what I want, what's important, and it develops this vision for the flourishing of another person. Like that's the heart of love. Any parents in the room? Any parents, parents, parents? Every time we do a child baby dedication, something you'll hear from whomever's doing it up here is that there is a movement in our children's and in our parenting and our relationship with our kids that's very healthy and very hard, and that is the movement from authority to influence. That is the maturing of love. A mature love recognizes the way that I parent and love and demonstrate love to my eight-month-old should be different than how I demonstrate and show that love to my eight-year-old, my 18-year-old, my 28-year-old, my 38-year-old. And when it's not, when they look the same, we're in trouble, right? But that's, that's, that's why love persists, because it adapts, it moves forward, right? And so we're always moving. And I say it's a gradual process, right? I'm, it's a gradual process, right? There's a danger in holding on to authority too long. There's a danger in giving up authority too soon. And it's different for every kid, right? It's different for every kid how you do that as you navigate that. But that's, I think, what maturing love looks like. And as we get that in our hearts, as we begin to get okay with the idea that love transforms, it changes, that love has to shift, what's going to happen? It's going to be amazing. Like our world is going to be filled with something so powerful because what maturing love does is it causes us to adapt to new realities and to adopt new perspectives in our evolving relationships. Our relationships evolve, things change. One of the things I say all the time, if I'm ever sitting with a young couple that are getting married and they wanna do pre-marriage counseling, which don't ever ask me my opinion on pre-marriage counseling because you probably won't like it, but here's the thing. I, I sit down and I say, listen, one of the biggest things you just gotta remember is I, you are gonna marry somebody right now and in five years, 10 years, you're going to be married to the same person with the same name, but it's a totally different person. And if love doesn't adapt to those new realities, if love doesn't adopt new perspectives, then you're going to hear those horrible phrases, I, I just don't think I love you, and I don't know you. Because you're true, it's true, you're going to come to a point where you don't know that person, you have to re-get to know them. And I think that's a picture of what all of life is in so many ways, that if our love doesn't mature, it just gets stuck, and we want everybody to be the way they were when we first met them, and it was wonderful, but that's not life. That's not how this works. So in just a moment, we're going to sing this beautiful song, Hope Has a Name. Give you an opportunity to take a breath. No more words from me. <laughs> and it, a lot of excitement there. I don't know how to take that. Was that my brother-in-law who did that? I don't know. <laughs> 
As we do that, I just want to encourage you to, this is the big question during a song. During these moments where we just pause, I always encourage people to just ask God, what are you inviting me into? Don't ask God, what do you want from me? What do you want for me? Like, what are you inviting me? It's such a beautiful question. What are you inviting me into? Sometimes God invites us into action. Sometimes God invites us into rest. Sometimes God invites us into disorientation so that we can reorient. And all of us are different in here. You're all in different spaces. It's it's very arrogant to think that one message can produce like one or two ideas for everybody. Like you might have heard a song earlier today and, and there's a lyric that's just stuck with you and this is your moment to process a little bit of that. You maybe have nothing to do with this message. But what is it that God's inviting you into? And, and as, an, as a gathered church, there's, there's two or three things that I would just throw out there that I would encourage you to think about. One is these connect groups we've been talking about. That just, are you in a space where you might need connection with people at a more personal intimate level, a space where love can flourish? Maybe are you a a type of person who could lead that environment of just creating space where people can connect and love one another? And we're kind of formulating these groups. So if you have any interest in leading one, or if you have any interest in being in one, you can check that box on the connect card. I'll say this too, like this may be something you wouldn't hear a lot of places, like not everybody needs this, okay? Not everybody needs this. You might have a group of people that love you unconditionally and that you can love and support. and grow. That's wonderful. So when I say not everybody needs it, I mean not everybody needs it from this form. We all need it, but you might be getting that somewhere. I know our family needed it big time. We needed the church to provide the opportunity for us to create a group because when we moved here, we knew nobody. <laughs> and now two and a half years later, we have five or six couples and people in our lives that are in our connect group that, gosh, it's hard to imagine life without them being present right now. And that was important for us, and it is important for us, and maybe that is for you. So I don't throw that out there as like a guilt, like everybody needs to do this. But maybe it's in your heart you sense that invitation. And I, I hope that everybody will sense to invite somebody next week to Football Sunday. It's going to be a fun Sunday. We're going to have all the tables out, snacks. Ricky's going to be here. Ricky connects with people in just a really amazing way. And it's going to be a really powerful talk on, on loving when you haven't been given an example, a good example of love. And he's going to share from his own kind of pain and brokenness. He's super excited. I talked to him. It's like, save some for the sermon, Ricky. <laughs> so it's going, to be a, it's going to be a good week next week. I would just encourage you to invite somebody to tune in with you or to come over before uh, the game happens, whatever it might be. But as we sing this song, this is just an invitation to breathe a little bit, you might want to sing along. You might just want to close your eyes, pray. You might want to just think through what, what is it God's inviting you into. And then I'll be back after the song to give us our blessing and get us out of here to enjoy the day and to live the life of an everyday normal peacemaker this week. So let me just let me say this just in case didn't hear all of what I said. I believe beyond any doubt that death will be defeated. I believe that. I believe in the core of what Paul was kind of scratching the surface on. I don't want anybody to hear me say that I don't believe that. I just, I find great hope in that Paul got it wrong how that happens. (laughs) And I do believe it's dangerous. I do believe it's dangerous to humanity 
to carry on a belief that one day in this one moment, God takes care of everything and, and we're not called to participate in that. I think that's very dangerous. And that's why I think it's important, even though it's not popular to say it, right? That we are called into this life and we're called into creating and living in the kingdom of God now. And how God, how God works that all out at some point in the culmination of what Paul refers to as the perfect is way beyond my pay grade. And I'm happy to have conversations about it and explore it and talk, but what it does is it drives me into, and I hope it would drive our church into a space of recognizing why, why mercy and justice and human flourishing are vital and what it's all about, right? Because that seems to me to be a core part of the gospel message for us. So would you do me a favor, lift up your arms and just receive our blessing for the week as we head out. May God bless you and keep you this week as you go about your normal routine. And may you discover the beauty and grace of God in those mundane and ordinary moments. And may your love mature as you seek to live in the mystery of this resurrected life. And may the inspiration of 1 Corinthians 13 bring a solid foundation into the relationships that are forming in your life in these days. And may the hope of 1 Corinthians 13 bring persistence into those relationships that you're struggling with right now in your life. And may the deep truth of 1 Corinthians 13 bring peace into your heart for the relationships that you have lost. And may your love be mature enough to adapt to new realities and adopt new perspectives as our world evolves. And in all of this, may the peace that goes beyond human understanding and the love that is deeper than the deepest ocean guard your heart and your mind as you live in Christ Jesus. Amen. Have an awesome week, everybody.